You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Good evening, church. You go ahead and take your seats if you'd like. I know that we've had some, uh, some newer people that's been coming here uh, recently, and we're glad that you're here. Uh, if you don't know who my, who my name, gosh, I'm already nervous, guys. You can already tell. Um, if you don't know who my name is, my name is David Allison, and I'm an elder candidate here at Revolution Church. Uh, this is always fun for me to get up in here and do this because I can't even do announcements right, and then i got to go up and preach to you guys. So just bear with me. Um, as most of you know, we've been going through a series on the Ten Commandments. Um, this being said, I am on the Sixth Commandment this week, and we are going to look at that tonight. Um, if you go ahead and turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, verse 13 is going to be our um, sentence for tonight. Uh, I think for, for many of us, I think that the Sixth Commandment is something that we kind of brush over. Um, we don't really pay much attention to this command because it's kind of a, a uh, largely held moral amongst most people. You go ask anyone in the street, like obviously they're going to tell you it's wrong to murder people. Um, but I, I think that the Sixth Commandment is something that we all think that we keep. We actually don't. Um, we like to think of the Sixth Commandment as the only thing that we actually like to keep. Um, so as we look at this, I think we, look, we go down the Ten Commandments. We look at it and say, yeah, obviously I've never actually murdered someone. I'm good. We keep going down uh, to the rest of the commandments. Um, but I think this commandment helps us a lot as we figure out how to assess uh, political agendas and worldviews. It helps us um, to look at other people and see who they are as, uh, as people, how we view them, and how we understand the concept of justice. Uh, we live in a time where, where most people find this commandment to be a no-brainer, uh, but when we look closely at the world around us, I think that signs are there that this is the most broken commandment. Um, we like to think of America being a civilized country, uh, but we're living in a very angry and violent time um, where anger and violence is in all of its forms here. Uh, I don't know if, if many of you are familiar with Al Mohler. Uh, he calls our generation and our time right now, uh, he calls it the culture of death. And I think that's because we have a very callous disregard for life. Um, there's death in the city where shootings happen every day. Uh, there's death in our schools where children are being shot as they're trying to get an education. Uh, there's death on highways where people are just commuting to and from work. Um, there's death in clinics where children are murdered for the sake of convenience. Uh, there's calls for death all over social media platforms. Um, you know, whether they're political leaders or whatever it is, there's calls for death everywhere. Uh, this list could go on and on, uh, but tonight we're going to actually walk through this commandment and look at all of its implications. Um, for the sake of time, I actually ran this through at home, and I was a lot more comfortable than I am now, but even that was like 50 minutes, so I might actually kind of speed through this a little bit, uh, which might work because I talk pretty fast anyway. But you may walk away tonight, you may not have uh, some questions answered, or you may have some questions that if you want to come to me after, uh, please do message me, get a hold of me. Um, but I think I chose the most relevant topics for today in our culture. So um, we're going to get a little political because a lot of morality and politics go hand in hand today. Uh, things might be a little bit uncomfortable, and I hope that we walk away with a better understanding of the Sixth Commandment or are remembered of truths um, that we've forgotten. So that being said, let's go ahead and read our text. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not murder. Let's go ahead and pray. 
Dear Father, I thank you for another, for another day that we can come um, to have corporate worship, to read your word, to be able to preach your word, um, to be able to sing and give you glory and praise. Um, I ask that you would help calm my nerves. I ask that you would allow us to prepare our hearts, um, to have ears to hear and eyes to see, um, that we can, we can actually learn from this and walk away and be able to apply things in our lives. I thank you for this church and where we're at in this area. And I just ask that you would bless this time for us tonight. In Christ's name, amen. So as we dive into the implications of this commandment, um, I think it would be beneficial for us to define our terms. This is going to help us understand this commandment and possibly avoid any type of confusion. So uh, the definition that I put together for us tonight, uh, this isn't something that I pulled from a dictionary. Uh, this is just a definition that when we look at the whole of what scripture says about killing and murder, um, this is what I've seen. So the way I'm going to define murder is the unjust, premeditated, deliberate, or accidental killing of a human being, or spiritually speaking, hatred and anger and thought, word, or deed. So this commandment is not only limited to the physical taking of life, but is also to the murder that can happen in our hearts. Now, many of us around here have grown up uh, with the King James Bible. It's very cherished translation, uh, especially around southern Ohio. It's been used for hundreds of years. However, if you're, if you're familiar with this translation, you will see that there's a problem that arises with this specific commandment. The KJV translates, translates this commandment as thou shalt not kill. And um, thou shalt not kill has brought a lot of confusion, bringing some people to even have uh, vows of pacifism. So simply put, the KJV translation in regards to this commandment is just a bad translation. It is not good. Um, in studying this week, there's actually, uh, what I've found is that there's eight different words in Hebrew for killing. And the two most popular are killing and murder. The word rasha is the word used in this commandment, and that word is the Hebrew word for murder. So, and something interesting for us to note here is that the word rasha is never used in reference to the legal system or to the military. And there's actually different Hebrew words that are used um, for the execution of the death sentence and for the killing that a soldier does in combat. So there's, um, nor is this word actually ever used when it, in regards to hunting or killing animals. So this word, um, these two words, killing and murder, actually carry two different connotations, two different understandings. Um, they are not synonymous. And so the, the main point I want to get through through that is that killing and murder are not equal. Right? If they were, we would all be vegan pacifists, and I'd be a very upset David because I like steak too much. Not knocking on vegans anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah, so what constitutes murder then? Um, these are just some things that we're going to talk about tonight. These are some things that um, might just get your brain flowing, might be, get you to think. Um, so here's a short list of some things that I've thought of. Abortion, euthanasia, suicide, negligent homicide, any unjust killing, unrighteous anger or rage, violent emotions and intentions, or ill thoughts and actions. But why, why is murder wrong? Right? This, should be, this should be a question that we ask. Simply put, uh, murder is wrong because all humans are made in the image and likeness of God. In Genesis 1, 26 through 27, it says, um, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we have inherent worth because we are made in the Imago Dei. Uh, because of this, your own life and every innocent life is, is um, worth preservation. And we are valuable because of who created us. Murder is also wrong because it is an assault on God's sovereignty. Only God has the authority over life and death. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. And he is the only one who created man. He is the one who sovereignly rules over man. And he is the only one that can choose who lives and who dies according to his own purposes. You don't have the authority to take your own life. You don't have the authority to take someone else's life unless it is justly dictated by God himself. And this right belongs only to God. And murder is also wrong because it robs God of his glory. Every image bearer brings glory to God, and we are his masterpieces. To take a life unjustly is to rob God of a glorifying life. And that life glorifies God both ways, uh, one living for God, praising him for his holiness, and also an evil life by which God demonstrates his justice and wrath and his judgment. So it is to rob God of his glory to take life unjustly. So we've defined what murder is. We've established uh, that killing and murder are not synonymous. We've named some things that, that get us thinking. And we've considered why murder is such a heinous crime. So the next step for us is to then look at what is permitted under the Sixth Commandment. Um, so there's three things I have for us that we should consider. Self-defense, soldiers fighting in a just war, and capital punishment. Um, Self-defense is permitted under the Sixth Commandment for a few reasons. Christians are called to preserve life and protect it, and I believe that that starts with your own life and passes out to your family and to your friends. Uh, many of us here are husbands and fathers, wives and mothers. Um, we love our children, and we should try our hardest to prevent them from coming in contact with danger. And this is why we set rules. This is why we lock doors. This is why we guard our children. In my specific case, I'm a husband. Um, as a husband, I bear the responsibility of protecting my wife um, up until the point of death if it's necessary. If that time arises, I will put her safety above mine. So I think that this is a logical thing for us. Um, but I think that we can actually make uh, arguments from Scripture to say that self-defense does not violate the Sixth Commandment. So here's a passage that I want us to consider. This is in Exodus 22. Uh, this is verse 3. It says... If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun rises on him, there shall be blood guilt for him, for he shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. So interesting here in this verse, um, it protects both the thief and the homeowner depending upon the circumstance. If someone breaks into your home at night, they're either going to steal from you or possibly murder you. Um, in the darkness of night, you do not know what the motive of your intruder is. And under the darkness of night, we can't always know, you know especially in their time, um, if they have weapons or are intending to do us harm. So in this case, you are permitted to use lethal force um, in order to protect yourself and your family. God does not contradict himself, and he gives you permission and will not charge you with murder. Uh, but there's something that this verse is teaching us that I want us to look at. Uh, but if the sun rises and it's daylight, the circumstances will change. If you kill a thief in your home during the day, uh, you would be charged with murder. And we have to ask why. And that's because I think what this is teaching us is that we are called to value human life and to use uh, proportional force. Right? So 
Murder is not a just punishment for theft. If he is only stealing and there are no weapons or there is no intent um, that you can see that he's trying to do you harm, then we are to call the authorities and they will administer justice by arresting him and taking him away. Murder is not a proportional force for theft. Now, most biblical scholars agree that there's an implication in here that if you are during the daylight um, and he breaks into your house and you know that he has intent to harm you, you can kill him and you will also not be charged with murder. Um, but that's to make sure that we do not use unproportional force um, to kill someone who is trying to rob us, right? So if Maria and I are in public and a guy comes and tries to steal her purse and runs away with it, I can't pull out my gun and just shoot him in the back because that is, un- that is unjust, right? That's unproportional, unproportional use of force and that is murder. My wife's life wasn't in danger, my life wasn't in danger and um, he's just stealing from me. I can go and try and get the purse back if I need to, or whatever that is, or if not, you just call the police and they will take care of it. Um, But not only can we defend ourselves, we have a duty to defend others if we can. Uh, If I can, I need to help prevent harm of life um, for other people, right? So we should aid and assist others because we value the life that God has given them, and we should pull from these moral principles from this text and let them be our guide in how we understand to defend ourselves and our families. And so in, in, in light of defending ourselves and for other people, this brings us to our next topic, which is war. Uh, soldiers fighting in a just war is permitted under the Sixth Commandment. We know that God does not forbid war because he actually called Israel into war in the Old Testament. In the book of Joshua, God actually commands Israel to slaughter the Canaanites in order to occupy the Promised Land. Um, It was a bloody war of total destruction where God used his people to execute moral judgment against his wicked enemies. And now you may be thinking, okay, like I get that, that was then, this is now, but I would still say that even today war is permitted. Sometimes it is necessary for a country to go to war. And we must remember that the purpose of military is not to just kill people, but to keep citizens safe. And that's also according, if a country is governing itself according to a moral, um, a godly moral principle, right? So killing in wartime is sometimes the only option left to keep citizens safe, to end oppression, and to aid people. But how do we reconcile the Sixth Commandment with the understanding um, that we're not allowed to kill or to murder? And what we're going to get into then is what uh, many Christian theologians have held to for hundreds of years, and this is something called just war theory. Just war theory is attributed to the theologian Augustine. And it's been a guiding theory for, for hundreds of years. And we're not going to spend a whole bunch of time on it, but it is really helpful to understand uh, the four main principles and what it's going to teach us. Um, so here's the four main principles. When we go to war, it must be for a just and noble cause. It must be waged by a legitimate government authority, right? Not just uh, a band of civilians that want to have an uprising. Um, that the force used is proportionate to the attack, and that the war is waged, obviously, against men who are soldiers where we limit civilian casualties. So it is not murderous to kill in war if we are fighting a legitimate evil or are fighting for people being oppressed. It is, if it, it is for a just cause, it cannot be claimed that this is murderous. Um, it is not murderous if we are declared into a state of war from a legitimate government who has the God-given authority to do that. Um, it is not murderous if we are using if we are not using unproportional force, right? You're not gonna drop a a nuclear bomb on 12 people and decimate 100 miles worth of homes and families because it's unproportionate, right? That that would be an evil act. 
and it's not murderous if we are fighting soldiers and those who are cooperating uh, with them in their pursuit to kill innocent people. So when all four of these elements are used together, uh, we are taking a biblical and an ethical approach to war. So war is permitted, but it needs to be filtered through these biblical principles. And the last topic um, is the topic of capital punishment. Capital punishment is permitted under the Sixth Commandment. Now, I know for many people, um, this is one that a lot of people wrestle with. At least when I talk to a lot of Christians, this is one they have problems with. But I want you to think back to the first murder ever recorded in the Bible. In chapter 4 of Genesis, we read of the first murder where Cain was jealous of Abel and he murdered him in the field. And just a few chapters later, we see the institution of capital punishment from God himself. We read in Genesis 9-6, God said to Noah and his sons, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So God demands that a murderer shall be put to death for his offense. Life is so valuable that the life is so valuable that the ultimate offense must be paid with the ultimate price, which is your own life. Now flip to Romans 13 with me if you can. In Romans 13, we, we find the Apostle Paul explaining the role of the Christian in submission to governing authorities. So God, through the Apostle Paul, tells us, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will, have, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath to the wrongdoer. So when we take these two passages together, we see that death is the penalty for murder. And then we see that our governing authorities have the right to administer capital punishment. And as the apostle Paul just said in this verse, they do not bear the sword in vain. So the government has been handed authority by God to administer God's wrath and justice. And they're not stepping out of bounds when they do this, and this is why we actually have a justice system. The justice system is a physical institution for the here and now to administer God's wrath and to be a reflection of his justice. The purpose of, of capital punishment is not to, to destroy life, but to actually preserve it. It is necessary to take a life in order to save a life. It is because life is so precious that a murderer must be put to death, and this itself is not murder because this is just. So how do we know that this is just? Is we know that God has commanded it. That's how we know. Now I understand that the, uh, our justice system has many flaws in it. Um, and I would contend that these flaws should be addressed. I also understand that people have been put to death for murders that they did not commit. Um, however, I think that at the same time, we can support capital punishment while also fighting for a better justice system that is more efficient in preventing things like that from happening. The idea um, that we're going to put someone in prison for murder is a relatively new one, to be honest. Um, the idea that you're going to give someone free food, free shelter, cable TV, have your laundry done for you, have leisure time where you can play basketball and read books, and maintain your life at the expense of other people's money is a really new idea. So capital punishment isn't overkill. Capital punishment is just. 
So we've looked at what is permitted under the Sixth Commandment, that we can defend ourselves with the, with the use of lethal force, that soldiers fighting in a just war is not murderous, and that capital punishment is just punishment. So now we're going to switch gears a little bit, and we're going to look at what is prohibited under the Sixth Commandment. So I have three topics for us to consider here, and that's abortion, euthanasia, and suicide. The Sixth Commandment prohibits abortion. And this is one of the most controversial topics in America right now, um, if not the most controversial topic, and it just really shouldn't be. Um, this is a no-brainer for anyone who does not have a conscience that is completely seared by their own wickedness. This should especially be a no-brainer for the people of God, uh, for anyone who professes to love and follow our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're not going to actually shy away from this topic. Um, this is the greatest moral evil of the world today that I believe, um, and the people of God must address hard topics and, and judge with a biblical and Christian moral ethic. So as Christians, we believe that life begins at conception. But why do we believe this? Well, I would say that we believe this primarily because of what Scripture says, but this is also verified through science and just plain common sense. So I have six things for us to consider here. The first one, um, nearly any embryology book will verify this. It will tell you that each one of our lives traces back uh, to the zygote at the moment of conception. Uh, we didn't become something different, and we've all been formed from that original life that we are now. And people will try and change terminology and they'll redefine uh, definitions to fit their agendas because they know that this is true. This is how scientists can find bacteria on an asteroid from space and deem it life. And then when you have a two-week-old child in the womb, they will look at it and call it non-life. They must redefine and change their terms to fit their agendas, and they're just inherently inconsistent with how they define what constitutes life. Personhood exists where biological life exists. And when your biological life begins, you exist as a person made in the image of God. And this is just a scientific fact. But point two, there's a passage that I want us to look at. This is only one chapter ahead. Exodus 21, this is verses 22 through 25. I'll read this to you. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that, her so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then he shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. So to sum this up, if you have two guys that are fighting and they hit a pregnant woman, you know, maybe, maybe he swings a punch and he misses. Maybe he goes to tackle the other guy and he misses. Maybe they're just in, in close quarters. Who knows? Um, if they're fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she goes into premature labor and the child lives um, and ends up being okay, that man is fined, right? Um, he'll pay for medical bills, stress, and he'll pay for expenses. However, if that man hits that woman, uh, the pregnant woman, her child dies, he will pay for it with his life. That man will be killed, meaning that what happens to the child is exactly what happens to that man, and that this is justice. Because the baby in the womb has legal rights in the sight of God. Because there is a person who is made in the image and likeness of God that exists in that womb. Our third point. Um, Psalm 51.5 tells us that we are sinful from our mother's womb. Right? A baby is not only a person, but a sinner. A sinner who needs a savior. Only human beings are the ones who are called sinners. Only human beings are people that who need a savior. 
point four, um, Isaiah and Jeremiah, they're two great Old Testament prophets, and both tell us that um, while they were in their mother's womb, they were called into their prophetic ministry. So from the womb that they were called. And in Luke 5, 115, we read about John the Baptist. Uh, before he was actually born, Scripture tells us that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So not only do we believe in a God that calls prophets into their ministry from the mother's womb, but we also believe in a God that will save a baby in the mother's womb. We believe that God can act through regeneration on behalf of children while they're in the room, and we believe that God can apply the work of Christ, um, saving them in the womb and calling them into ministry. But I want you to notice something here. These are only things that God does for people. God knows that these are babies made in his image because he takes part in their creation. Psalm 139 says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intrinsically woven into the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. God does not do these things for animals. He, he does not do these things for a mere clump of cells because he only does this for a child or for a fetus that is made in the image and likeness of God. And the most compelling of all these arguments is this next one, at least for me it was. In the New Testament, um, there's a Greek word for children, and that word is brephos. In Luke 18, we read a whole bunch we read about a whole bunch of children uh, coming up to Jesus, and parents are, are bringing their children over to him. I imagine they're, they're playing with him and pulling on his beard and listening to him as he teaches. Um, it's one of the most beloved stories about Jesus because it shows us the compassion and the love that he has for children. The disciples actually tried to prevent this from happening, uh, and, and Jesus looks at these children and their, and their families, and he says, let the children come to me. And the reason why this is important, um, the word used for these children in Luke 18 is that word brephos. And now if we go back to the beginning in Luke chapter 2, um, we read about a woman named Mary who has in her womb a brephos, a child, whose name is Jesus Christ. The Bible uses the same word for the unborn or the preborn Jesus as the children who run up to him and play with him in Luke 18. God, who speaks to us through Scripture, makes no distinction between the child in the womb and the child in the lap. There is no difference. There are other words that could have been used, but God intentionally uses this word. Family life begins at conception. And when we understand this and when we see it in Scripture, we have reason, uh, as we've reasoned through these passages, we know that there's a child in that womb. And I used the word fetus before correctly, right? Many people don't know um, where that word comes from. They use the word fetus to try and dehumanize the baby. They say it's just a fetus, it's just a clump of cells. Fetus is Latin for little child. And ironically, people who are arguing that it's just a baby, um, they call it a little child when they call it a fetus. So when we understand that life begins at conception, and we know that to kill a baby in the womb is murder, that we understand that it is an unjust, premeditated, and deliberate killing of a human being for almost no more reason than personal convenience or not owning up responsibility to their actions or because they do not value the life of a child who may have special needs. Since Roe v. Wade, over 61 million abortions have been performed just here in America. And if you ask me, this is the most immoral act that the United States has ever committed to date. God will bring judgment to this nation because of it. 
And God in the Old Testament actually would wholesale wipe out nations for practicing child sacrifice to pagan gods like Molech. Abortion is a wicked act that God hates, and Christians cannot support it. It is impossible to maintain a legitimate profession of faith in the Lord Jesus and also support and condone the slaughter of the unborn. Anyone who claims to do this is a, is a false professor who must repent and believe the gospel or suffer God's eternal wrath in hell. Because God has nothing but hatred for abortion. Now I understand that there can be complications during pregnancy. Um, some of these complications leave us to make really hard decisions. Um, or either your wife or your child, or even both are at risk at losing their lives. And an example of this would be something called an ectopic pregnancy, where the zygote actually implants outside of the uterus, uh, somewhere like in the fallopian tubes. And in this case, there's almost no chance that your child is going to survive, um, and your wife will most likely die in, when the child grows unless you remove that child. So in a case like this, or others where you are forced to choose because of life-threatening circumstances, I want to tell you that you are not a murderer to choose your wife. If a medic is on a battlefield and he's forced to choose between two injured men and he goes to one and the other one dies while he's aiding the other, that medic did not kill that other uh, soldier that was injured. Um, if there's two people in your house and, and there's a house fire, right, and you go in, you save one person, as you bring them out, the house falls in on itself, and you don't go in for the other one. You are not a murderer because you did not act in a way to terminate their life. There's a difference between being in a position where only one life can be saved and then gladly killing for the sake of convenience or just turning your back on someone. So I want to be plain here and remind us that though abortion is very heinous, it is not an unforgivable sin. It is an evil, vile, detestable Sin that should be hated by the people of God, but there is forgiveness offered um, in Christ to those who repent and believe. Christ has taken God's wrath for even the, even the awful sin of abortion for whoever will believe. And if there are many believers here who in the past have taken, a, taken part in, in this terrible sin, um, I want you to remember what the Apostle Paul has actually told us in Romans 8. He says, there is therefore no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your sins have been forgiven, and we should rejoice and thank God that he has given us mercy through Christ. But to our next topic, the Sixth Commandment prohibits suicide. Uh, for many people, this topic is extremely painful. Um, many families and friends have experienced the loss of loved ones, and I know that some of us um, have had or, or know people who struggle with suicidal thoughts. However, in light of the Sixth Commandment, this is a topic that we have to address. We must understand that suicide is a sin. It's not an unforgivable sin, but it's a sin. And the Sixth Commandment not only condemns murder, but it condemns self-murder. We know that every single person in this room has been fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. Right? That you have inherent worth, that you have a specific God-given purpose for your life, and that your life is worthy of protecting. You're not just a random product of chance existing in a meaningless universe void of purpose and truth. You're an image bearer. And suicide may feel like the only way out. It may feel like it's the only escape. But God will never lead us into a, situa into a situation where violating his own commandment is the only option. Thoughts of suicide are not from God, but from Satan. And this is, a, this is an act that God will never command or condone. Because when we take a life, we rob God. 
Not only do we not have the authority to take another life, but we don't have the authority to take our own lives. God has not given us the right or the authority to kill ourselves. And to commit suicide is to claim lordship and sovereignty over your own life. I'm not here saying these things to be harsh or to be insensitive. Um, I understand that people struggle heavily with depression, with loneliness and anxiety, but we do not help struggling saints by refusing to tell them that suicide is, is displeasing to God. Lovingly spoken, these honest truths about suicide may be the only way that God jolts a suicidal soul back to better, saner, and more righteous thinking. Your life is precious to God even when you have concluded that it is pointless and God will be faithful to you. The pain may not go away in some situations, but God promises to see you through whatever he has ordained for you to suffer. You are his sheep, he is your shepherd, and he will not abandon you in the darkness of life. He will be faithful. Now the sixth commandment also prohibits euthanasia. Not all forms of murder are violent. In fact, some death carries clipboards and wears lab coats. Euthanasia has been on the rise here in America and has already been accepted in places like the Netherlands. It has been gaining popularity in today's culture as some contend that natural death is undignified, that caring for the elderly or the terminally ill becomes a waste of emotional and financial resources. Um, and this worldview has convinced some Americans that some lives are just worth less living um, and that some lives aren't worth living at all. We have seen this being sold and, and pitched to us as being an act of compassion, that letting a patient end their life lifts a burden off of the family and off of their caretakers. But we must see that this kind of thinking is a direct assault on the biblical understanding of personhood. So here's a question for you. How can we try to prevent suicide among young teenagers and adults and then encourage it among the sick and the elderly? Can we not understand how inherently inconsistent that is? We cannot allow foggy definitions of compassion to cloud our thinking, and euthanasia is just another form of acceptable murder in our society that Christians just can't advocate for. And now, as we go through this, I want to make a distinction here. Um, what is murderous about euthanasia is the termination of life. And I say that because many people get, get this confused um, with the termination of treatment. So the termination of treatment is not equal to the termination of life. If you're a 91-year-old cancer patient and you're given the choice to undergo treatment that may prolong your life for a couple more months or deny treatment and, and pass away peacefully in your bed, you have not committed suicide to, to choose the latter. That is choosing to end treatment, to not to just terminate your life. You're allowing the body to die naturally. So there is a legitimate moral distinction between killing and allowing someone who is terminally ill to die. But with that distinction being made, we are called to see and recognize that every human life is precious. Unborn life is precious, aging parents, the lives of our children, young adults, the lives of those with special needs, and your own life is precious because all human life matters to God. We are to defend, honor, and give thanks for life, for your life, for your children's, for your parents, for your friends, for your co-workers, because the Sixth Commandment aims to protect it. So we've talked about what the Sixth Commandment prohibits. We cannot abort our children. We cannot advocate for abortion and should fight to see abortion made illegal here in America. 
We cannot commit suicide because even self-murder is still murder. And we cannot support euthanasia because even the lives of the elderly and the ill are precious. They're not a burden, and their lives should be protected. Now, everything we've talked about so far is useful. It seems a little dry, and I understand it's political, but understanding these topics are important in today's culture. I know that most of you, I know most of you enough to know that you haven't murdered anyone physically, that you aren't advocating for abortion that, uh, or suicide or euthanasia, right? And as we've considered the bigger implications of the physical side of this commandment, there is more to this commandment than just that physical side. There's a, there's a rule. It's called the inside-outside rule of interpreting the Ten Commandments. And we must recognize that each commandment covers inside attitudes as well as outward actions. So we must now consider the spiritual side of this commandment. And this is where I think we're met with a hard truth that we don't like to hear. That we're actually murderers at heart. Now you may think that that statement's a little extreme, uh, but hear me out on this. Actually, as we read scripture, hear God out on this. In 1 John 3.15, John tells us that everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So John actually tells us that if we, if we have hatred in our hearts for others, we are just as guilty as someone who has, con- who has committed a physical murder. And this means that the hatred that we have in our hearts should be paid for with death. We see that not only is this the inward posture of our hearts that makes us murderers, but the outward expression and the things that we say and the things that we do. And as Steve mentioned before, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually goes to deepen and transform this commandment, and he really helps us understand its true significance. Matthew, uh, Matthew 5, 21 through 22 reads, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool! will be liable to the hell of fire. So did you catch the significance there? Right? If, you were, if you were angry with your brother, or if you insult your brother and call them an idiot, then we are liable to judgment and damnation. And I think that we break this commandment more so than we would ever dare admit. As I was studying, um, the, Heidelberg, the Heidelberg Catechism really drives this commandment home for us, um, and it was so good that I actually wanted to use it here. Um, Question 105 asks us, what is, what is God's will for you in the Sixth Commandment? Answer, I am not to belittle, hate, insult, or kill my neighbor, not by my thoughts, my words, my look, or gesture, and certainly not by actual deeds. And I am not to be party in this and others, rather I am to put away all desire for revenge. Question 107 says, is it enough then that we do not murder our neighbor in any such way? The answer is no. By condemning envy, hatred, and anger, God wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly towards them, to protect them from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. So we can see that following the Sixth Commandment is actually much harder than we like to think. Not only is this hard for us to follow by ourselves, but because of the influence of our social and political climate. I mean, Americans are just angry people. Uh, We have unrighteous anger. We have hatred and desire for revenge over the smallest of things. We can see it in how we speak to our wives when we silently judge people, when we explode on our children for the smallest of things, 
when someone pulls out in front of you and you curse them to high heaven, when we belittle people and make fun of them and hurt their feelings, when you trash talk somebody when they walk away to your friends. And I promise you right now we could find all of these things in less than five minutes on social media. We are an angry people who do not have the compassion, love, and patience that we are called to have. And Proverbs actually tells us that the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. By the mouth of the wicked, sorry, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence, and that our harsh words are like sword thrusts. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I would bet more often than not that our speech reflects death much more than life. We hurl sword thrusts at people and thought and word, which is just another way of saying that we are murderers with our words and with our thoughts. Now, some of you may even have someone that's popped into your mind that you just really don't like. I think we all have them. Someone that you've had problems with in the past that you still harbor resentment for. And at this time, you may be trying to talk yourself out of the idea that you actually hate that person. Like, no, I don't hate them, right? You don't want to admit that. I've been there. I've done it. And if, if we have to try and convince ourselves that we don't hate someone, you probably hate them. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, you know what, I don't think I've ever actually hated anyone. Well, I have a list for us to consider and to think about to show us where our hatred lies. Because somewhere in this list, something is bound to come up inside of you. Here's a list of people that we hate. Moms, dads, aunts, uncles, cousins, brothers, and sisters, grandpas and grandmas, mother-in-laws, father-in-laws, brother-in-laws, sister-in-laws, our bosses, our coworkers, former friends, exes, law enforcement, political leaders, Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, those who have had or advocate for abortions, heretics, Muslims, racists, your neighbors, street beggars, liars, thieves, cheaters, drug dealers and drug addicts, specific patients and specific students. And this list could just go on forever. We have to ask ourselves, are you a murderer? Do you ever say anything to hurt someone? Do you ever take secret satisfaction in someone else's misfortune? Do you ever, do you have an enemy, you know, someone that you're out to get? Do you want to make someone pay for something that they've done in personal revenge? Or do you ever get so angry that you're just completely out of control? The answer is yes. All of us here in this room have murdered people in our hearts. And scripture tells us that murderers will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what do we do? How do we fix this problem? We look to Christ. Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience that we could not live. Jesus lived 33 years from his childhood to his adulthood, completely sinless. And Jesus kept all of God's laws, including the law that said, you shall not kill unlawfully. He took upon himself our sin. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become, righteous, become the righteousness of God. So Jesus takes all of our hatred, all of our anger, all of our resentment, all of our insults, all of our bad attitudes. And on that cross, God the Father pours out every last drop of his righteous wrath on him, 
And Jesus died a death that he did not deserve to save murderers like you and I. For those who have placed their faith in Christ Jesus alone, we have peace with God because of Christ's righteousness. We have been given his perfect obedience and, and his keeping of the law that said you shall, not, you shall not murder. And our sin has been imputed to Christ and Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, making us blameless and holy. And while we are battling with our sin, pursuing holiness and making strives in our sanctification, we can rest in the promise that Christ has paid the ultimate price for us by his blood. Now, if there's anyone in this room that is an unbeliever, I have to tell you that there is wrath for you. God is a just judge, and he will not let a murderer walk without just payment. You can pay the price yourself with the unrelenting wrath of God in eternity for hell. Or you can turn from your sin, repent of your murderous heart, believe by faith in the person and work of Christ on your behalf. You can dump that burden and walk free as a child of God because Christ paid it in full for all who would believe. So if there's anyone here tonight that, that is not a believer, I encourage you, repent and believe in Christ as your Savior. So as we close tonight... Um, I want to challenge us this week. It's really, it's kind of hard to go through these things and, and try and give people application because the main problem with this is our hearts. Um, this sermon has actually been one of the hardest sermons for me to write because I struggle with this heavily. I think a lot of people know that I have a short fuse. If you know me, uh, I tend to pop off and, and it used to be much worse. Um, I don't act out outwardly as I used to, but it's, it's still there inwardly. And so writing this has just been clobbering me over the head all week. Um, Unrighteous anger is one of the biggest sins that I wrestle with. So when I challenge you with these things, um, I'm challenging myself, right? I'm speaking to myself. So for us this week, I want us to pray. I want us to pray for all the people that you thought of. I want you to, to just to try and love them. Um, I want you to pray for patience. Pray for heart change. Pray that we would love these people and that we would be slow to anger. Pray that we would be more compassionate and pray that we would speak words of life instead of words of death. I said that we should pray these things because it is heart change that's going to lead into our outward actions. Because we know that behavior modification just doesn't work. You can try and force yourself to like someone and it's not going to work. This has to happen through the heart. We must be changed from the inside out, from the Holy Spirit, to really make us love our neighbors. And I want us all to think about Christ and the love that he has and what he's shown to undeserving sinners like us. He is our perfect model of love. And he is the one who prayed for sinners. He's the one who loved them and even laid down his life for them. Let Christ be your model for love and look for his example and strive to imitate him. Though our hearts are wicked and we have to fight against them, heart change is the only way that we, can, that we can actually do this. So in light of all that, I just want to leave you with the words of the Apostle Paul. This is in Ephesians 4, 31 through 32. It says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Father, uh, we thank you for this time that we can come to hear your word. 
I ask that um, this would be beneficial for us, that as we look through these texts and as we consider what you have to tell us through your word, that it would be applicable for us. Um, I pray that we would be a soft-hearted people, that we would not be as hard-hearted to where we're just always talking down to people, um, showing hatred, bursting out in anger. Um, Lord, you know this is something that we all do. And I just ask that you would help to aid us to become a holier people for the rest of this week and for the next coming months, that this would just hang over us and that this would be a teaching moment for us. Uh, we thank you for this church and the people that are here. Um, we thank you for the location that it's in, for the students that are here. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.